Good morning, everybody. Good to see that you're awake on this day of worship, but also a day in which we celebrate uh, fathers. Uh, This uh, uh, month, we are working slowly through uh, chapter 8 of Romans. You will find that uh, on page um, uh, uh, 1,201 in the Bible that's in the pew. You can follow on the screen, or probably you've already been waiting for me on your electronic device Let me just read uh, this center section. It begins in verse 18 uh, through uh, verse uh, 25, and that will be our text for this morning. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. For I consider that suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first Fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For we who hope for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. I love listening to children deal with very difficult theological ideas. You get some of the most simple but honest and clear answers. These group of children were asked, what will heaven be like? What will it be like when this is all said and done? And one child said, heaven is made up of glitter and marshmallows. Another child said, it's a place filled with puppies. Evidently, that's just something he really liked. And then one uh, little girl said, even spiders are nice in heaven. (laughs) And then a little boy, you could tell what was on his heart. He said, McDonald's will be on every corner in heaven. Then a little theological guy said, in heaven, you won't get cold or sick or hungry You'll just be happy. And then honesty, my dad is going to be in heaven because he's getting really old. (laughs) And then a child after my own heart said, there is going to be baseball in heaven. The problem was that little child had a little white socks hat on. That may not happen. We're studying this chapter because I believe it's so foundational uh, for our understanding of what's going on now and what is going to happen. That is, it, it unfolds a story, a, a large, big story that encompasses all of our individual stories. This week we are being told by Paul that all of creation has been subjected to futility, that is, frustration. 
and decay. That is, everything is moving uh, from a state of order to a state of disorder. Everything is, is, is uh, degrading and falling apart. And we know that because we sit here as evidence number one, our very bodies. In fact, because we took 30 minutes this morning to find our keys, that's evidence that even our minds are decaying and we can't even remember. People, places, and things are all falling apart. They're broken. We know from the beginning of the story in Genesis, that's not the way it always was. In fact, God said it is good and beautiful and perfect. He said over and over again how good it was, but then he pronounces after sin enters the world a malediction. At the end of this service, we will do a benediction, which is a good word, and malediction in Latin means a bad word. It is after God pronounces seven benedictions over his creation, good, 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 very good, he pronounces a malediction, a bad word after sin comes into the world, and he says, cursed. Everything and it, all the people, places, and things have come under this curse. And as a result, everything is broken. And that too is part of our story and part of the story. That everything in this world has been subjected to futility, frustration, and decay. This text is similar to the message of an Old Testament book. Romans 8 delivers the echoes of Ecclesiastes, the book that says everything is vanity, everything is frustration, everything doesn't work the way it is supposed to. It is like chasing after the wind to make it right. It's like vapor. We're hoping, Lord willing, that we'll be able to study this book on the tail end of Romans because they go so much together this fall. Do you remember the Greek myth of Asiphius and his curse or his life's work was to take this rock and to push it up a hill. And every time he got close to the top, the rock rolled back down the hill only to wake the next day and to do it all over again to push the rock up the hill. That is the definition of frustration. And that's how it sometimes feels to live in this world. That every time we push the rock up, it seems to come right back down and sometimes rolls right over us. What would Paul say about that? That's what this section, this text, this middle section is all about. How a Christian is to deal with the reality that everything is broken. That every person, place, and thing is broken. He says, you need two things and you have to have them simultaneously. I know we are, are binary creatures. We like on and off. We like lit and dark. We, we want everything to be one or the other. But Paul says you need both of these at the same time in order to live in this world. You, you need an unrestrained realism. You need to look at the world as it is. But you also need to have at the very same time, don't let go is unrestrained optimism. Yes, be realistic. You're not Pollyanna. But at the same time, you you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. 
So let's look at unrestrained realism. If you're very familiar with Eastern religions, they are coming into the United States, being adopted by many, many people as part of the way in which Americans are beginning to think about faith and the world through an Eastern lens. And part of that lens is to see hardship, suffering, brokenness, the, 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 the curse, to see it as an illusion, not real. And that ultimately what we want to do is to escape from that. That ultimate salvation is to escape from the illusion of the pain. However, Christianity speaks against that and says, no, Christian realism sees the world and suffering very differently. Verse 18, I consider that the suffering of this present time. You see, he doesn't say the illusion of the suffering, but this suffering, and Paul knows suffering well. It's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 20 says, creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21, the whole material world is in bondage to corruption. Verse 23 says, and because of that, the creation is groaning. We are groaning. And even God himself in the spirit is groaning about the frustration and the brokenness of our world. So let's be honest. There's a lot to be groaning about in our world. It isn't to take rocket science. It doesn't take hours and hours of surfing the net. Literally every newspaper, every newscast is filled with brokenness. It doesn't take uh, a someone who has a PhD in sociology or psychology to come to this conclusion, and that is that people, places, and things are not what they are supposed to be. I love uh, Tolkien's quote where he says that the only people in the world who long to be kings and queens are former kings and queens. That is, you don't know what you're missing unless you really are missing it. And those of us who live on this planet, and that's everybody in this room, I assume, know that something is wrong, that this isn't the way it was meant to be, that something has come into the world that has changed everything. And that's why the Bible is the most honest book for honest strugglers who experience difficult things. You know, if Paul could have put this verse in there, it would be like this. There's, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow because there's no end to the rainbow. And even if there was an end to the rainbow, there would be just more bills. If, if, if that doesn't cause you to groan about the condition of humanity and the world in which we live, nothing will. That everything that we think should be this way and turns out that way should cause us to lament, to groan. The Psalms are filled like that. Just spend this summer reading a Psalm. And one of the things that you'll walk away with is is that the writer is groaning about his condition, the condition of the world, the condition of people, people, places, and things full of disappointment and discouragement. Even Jesus groans. 
That's the word that is there when Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus who has died. And it says that Jesus inwardly groans how death has stolen Lazarus from us. One of the great lessons that you and I need to learn is that death is not natural. It is not the way that things were meant to be. And everyone who dies, they are literally being stolen from us. And that causes us to grieve because we miss them. They were intended to always be with us and we were intended to always be with them. But that has changed. That's why we weep at funerals. That's why our heart is heavy as we watch someone that we deeply love, struggle for breath and life. Well, what's the lesson? Here's the lesson that we're supposed to get. Is that the more spiritually mature you are, the more tears you will shed, not less. The more mature you are in Christ, the more tears you will shed, not less. There is something in our hearts that knows that something is wrong with this world. When philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche began to study the condition of the world, when he looked at the frustration, the brokenness of every uh, person, place, and thing, his conclusion was that the only right conclusion is to commit suicide. You hear that? Christians come to this text and have a very different perspective on the world. But when Friedrich Nietzsche, who is, who is agnostic about whether there is a God, in fact, at, at one point he says there is no God, God is dead. He comes to this conclusion that the only right response to the brokenness of our world is to also end your own life. That is a cross without resurrection. And that is hardship without hope. Hope doesn't make our suffering go away. That's escapism. That's Eastern thought. Do y'all remember the book Shadowlands? It's a kind of a biography of C.S. Lewis. And there's a scene in that that's not in the movie. If you saw the movie Shadowland, in the book, there's a scene where C.S. Lewis is at the funeral of joy, his wife. He married late in life. She dies of, uh, of a disease. And, and so they've gathered at his house, kind of like a wake. And, and so his close friend, Christopher, comes to him and wants to encourage him. Like we all do. When, when someone loses someone, we want to say something that's encouraging. We want to come to them and we want them to feel better about the loss. And so sometimes we say something that's not helpful. That is, it's not untrue, but because we We're not comfortable with silence, and that's what they really want, just our presence, not our words. We offer, we fill the silence with some words. And they're usually good biblical words, like you start the day in mourning, but tomorrow there will be joy. True. They're in a better place. If they're a Christian, that's true. But that's not what they want to hear. And so when Christopher was offering these kind of platitudes to C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis turned to him and said this, We are all rats. 
in the cosmic laboratory. It is this bloody, awful mess, and that is all there is to it. Can you hear his groaning about the loss of his wife? That he looks at that and he hurts so much that the only thing he can express is there's, there seems to be so little hope in this. C.S. Lewis, we would consider a giant of the faith, a father in our faith, and yet he struggled. Why can't we? This kind of honesty when reality punches us in the gut is not only permitted for the followers of Jesus, it's expected because it hurts. Are you weary? That's why we started this this service off by talking about rest. It's because we're weary. We're weary of the groaning of the brokenness of people, places, and things. If you're weary, there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, I think there's something right with you if you're weary of the groaning. Do you sometimes look at this world and the suffering in it and you just gush with tears? That's what Jesus did. He he overlooks Jerusalem and he weeps because they were what? Sheep without a shepherd. John Stott looks at that passage and he says this. John Stott was a preacher in the 20th century, a great commentator from Britain, and he said, we are, in the current state of affairs, half-saved people. We live with the reality of death, mourning, crying, and pain every single day. Now, if we stopped right there, I got a lot of realism. Where's my optimism? Where's my hope? So let me give you just a a little bit of that because that's what Paul does and we spend a lot of the time looking at that next week. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our deliverance, Paul says, is a foretaste. It's an appetizer of what is to come of the whole harvest. We're not in an agrarian society, so we don't probably know this as as much as those people who live in the Midwest or deep south or places in Western Maryland that still farm, that the harvest doesn't come all at one time. You have the beginning of the harvest and you have the end of the harvest and everything in between. And, and so what Paul is drawing on is an agrarian society to let them know that you Christians that have had the Holy Spirit come into your life and give you a new life has redeemed you. You are the leading edge of the harvest to come because God's ambition, God's goal is not to save you as an individual. That's too small a goal. He's saving the whole thing. People, places, and things. And because he's doing the whole thing, you are the leading edge. You're like going to the, to the, to, to the uh, field and seeing that it's white in places, but not everywhere yet. Some of the fruit is ready. And it's a, it's a clue. It's a sign that the harvest is coming. That's what Paul is drawing on here as our hope, is that as we are redeemed, 
Every time someone moves from death to life spiritually, every time somebody was blind spiritually and now sees, every time somebody was lame spiritually but now walks, the leading edge, you are an appetizer to the whole story. That's why N.T. Wright, when he commentates on this, he says, uh, creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for what? For our deliverance. I get often from people who read the newspaper and try to discern the scriptures in light of news. When is Jesus coming back? We have no clue. Well, we have one clue. When the last person who will ever call upon the name of the Lord is saved, then the father will turn to the son who's seated at the right hand and say, it's time, go, make all things new. Because everyone who will ever call upon the name of the Lord will finally call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And until then, we are half saved, awaiting for the redemption of our bodies, not just our souls. This is our unrestrained optimism. We are on our way to being fully and completely saved. And because of that, we can be honest and realistic about suffering in this world, but we don't have to be cynical because we also have the optimism. And therefore, we are given strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Strength for today. He, God is with us and he is for us. Look at verse 23. We are the first fruits of what? Of the Holy Spirit. We belong to the movement of the Holy Spirit on this earth that Jesus unleashed at Pentecost to bring people of every tribe, people, and tongue into the, the people of God, into the family of God. And God has a purposeful plan for us and this mess we call our world. We who are in Christ are waiting for the redemption, but so is creation. This body that you and I have can sometimes feel like a prison. That is, it doesn't do what it used to do. You can be as incredibly physically fit as Hector over there. Sorry to pick on you, Hector. But there are things Hector can't do today that he used to be able to do. And that's true for everyone in the room because our bodies are literally falling apart on us. The aches, the pain, the diseases, the insomnia, the mental illness, the cancer, the heart failure, the loss, marriage breakups, and loneliness are evidence of this decay. It's part of this big story that comes crashing in on us when someone we love or ourselves fall apart. You know, life is a series of stages, isn't it? You take care of yourself, then you take care of your children, and then you end up taking care of your parents. That's my stage now. One of my parents need care, one of Kathy's parents. I put her on a plane this morning so she could go care for her dad who's moving into hospice the final stage. That's incredibly painful to watch someone you love suffering as they leave. Praise God for those people who are called to help usher people into the arms of God, like hospice. 
I just want you to know this morning that there is not one wasted tear of yours. That God collects them all into his bottle because it is part of his plan to make up for all of the losses. Johnny Erickson Tata writes in one of her books, it's more of a biography, autobiography that she writes. She quotes John Newton, who is the writer of Amazing Grace. And this quote you've probably heard before, but coming out of her mouth while she has spent a lifetime in a wheelchair just carries so much more weight. Everything is necessary that God sends our way and nothing can be necessary that God withholds. If you know that she's been in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic, what she's saying is that, it, that what I am experiencing in this chair, my body literally falling apart in front of me, I cannot do what I want to do. It must not be necessary because if it was necessary, God would give it to me. That's what she's saying. And, and so sometimes when we began to heap on our own ideas of our suffering, we see that and can we say the same? This is what we will look at next week. This idea, how do you face your own suffering? But he, for now, listen to what Paul says about his suffering. Our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's no stranger to suffering. He was beaten. He was imprisoned and eventually martyred. And he says, I count it what? Light and momentary. And what we forget is the context for that statement of light and momentary is in comparison to the glory that is to come. In comparison to the weight of what is to come, where everything that is broken is going to be made new. The way we tend to talk about the heavens and the earth, where we're going, where this story ends, we call it new. And, and it's, it's a right term. And it's the only term we really have to describe that things are going to be so much better. No sin, no death, no loss, no pain, no disease. Everything is going to work the way it was designed. The only way we know how to describe that, because it is so radically different than our experience, is to call it new. But I think a, a more biblical word, a more accurate way to describe it is renewed. That is, what will heaven be like? The answer to those children is just like this. But without sin and death, and decay. And you and I, we can't fathom that today. We can't imagine what that would be like. Why? Because we have never known this place that way. Only our first parents, Adam and Eve, could imagine that. Everyone here, everyone who has ever lived since our first parents, including their children, has known a world that has been decaying and falling apart. Imagine a scale. This is Paul's point. Imagine a scale and you put all of your suffering and the suffering of the world on one side of the scale and you put on the other scale the weight of that glory when everything is made new again. It doesn't even compare. It doesn't even compare. Paul's encouraging us to see our individual micro stories of birth and life and death in light of the macro story 
of creation, fall, redemption, and everything is made new. It's not wishful thinking because it's a sure thing. That's how, why Paul goes into all of these past, uh, these future events and uses past tense. He who was called was justified. He who is justified, he sanctified. And he who is sanctified, he what? Glorified. We're going to see that next week. And he says, the reason it's, I can do that is not because it was grounded in nature. It's not a natural law what God is going to do. It is a supernatural law. But he grounds it in his own character. Listen to God from Hebrews 6. A very difficult passage, but a a wonderful, encouraging passage. He says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise that I'll make all things new, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This isn't true just of you as an individual. This is true of creation. Creation is tippy-toed. It's waiting for the final person who's going to call upon the name of the Lord to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And then Christ is going to come. The trajectory was set. D-Day was launched and successful. It's called the cross. V-Day is coming. This is the macro story that makes sense of all our micro stories. That's why C.S. Lewis, when he at the end on the last battle is describing it, he says this, listen to this. Aslan spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Isn't that great? If you're 88 years old in here, your entire life was just the cover page. And then he goes on and he says, now... At last, they are beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is is better than the one before. Now, that is a good book. That's why Paul says we need both of those to live in this world. An unrestrained realism. The suffering is real. It really hurts. We groan. We weep but not without hope. Hope driven deep, anchored in the character of God, that he who made the promise is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he not said, and will he not do it? Of course he'll do it, because 
the jig is up. If that doesn't happen, then we have wasted the cover story. We have wasted the table of contents on a God who cannot keep his promise. But Paul is so sure. Yes, you can't see it. Yes, you can't see it, but hope isn't seeing it. Hope is seeing it when it can't be seen because of the character of the one who makes the promise. We haven't seen anything yet. Now, everything begins in chapter one. And every chapter is better than the last. Don't you want that story to be your story? Of course you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Father, I thank you that in the midst of this room, just as Isaac began, there are people who are suffering and hurting and losing things, things that are dear, people that are dear, places are being lost. It's real to us and it hurts and we are groaning and weeping and lamenting and we want to do it with them. So help us to come alongside and just cry because there's lots to cry about. But at the very same time in our hearts, this is the time before the weeping starts to ground our anchor of our souls into the promiser, the character of our promise that you, Lord, is, are coming to send Christ to make all things new, beginning with our own hearts. We are the leading edge and we can give hope to a world that seems hopeless. That there is a God who is sovereign king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.